Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. What options do I have for transitioning the ownership of my business? How has the market for selling my business changed over a few wild years of pandemic and supply chain disruption? Is transitioning to an employee-owned model an option? And how do buyers evaluate the value of the company I've built and grown? These are all questions that any manufacturing business owner who may be looking to exit in the years ahead might be asking. My guest today is an expert in this arena, and he's here to answer these questions. Let me introduce him. Keith Butcher co-founded Butcher Joseph & Company in 2011 as a national investment banking firm focused on advising business owners on sale transactions to strategic or financial buyers and ESOP advisory. Throughout his career, Keith has advised corporate clients and private equity groups as an investment banker or attorney in more than 150 transactions. Prior to Butcher Joseph, Keith joined Morgan Stanley & Company in 2002, serving as an advisor to closely held businesses focused on middle market mergers and acquisition advisory services. Previously, Keith was an attorney practicing corporate tax, corporate law, mergers and acquisitions, and employee benefits law with a focus on ESOP transactions. Keith also previously served as executive president of Purcell Tire and Rubber Company, leading the company's corporate development efforts and held a seat on the board of directors. Keith earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in International Business from Bradley University and holds a JD from Wake Forest University. Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Well, we've known each other for a good while, going back, I think, about a decade or so, and it's it's really fun to be back in touch and have you here on the show. Yeah, I can remember meeting with you and your partner at the Pie Pizzeria office above the Pie Pizzeria and always reminded me that you had the best smelling office of anybody I'd ever visited. So, yeah, and it's still there. And so is our office, though, not for much longer. We're kind of condensing. We'll have a little space up there. But but yeah, that, you know, we moved into that neighborhood in, in St. Louis and in the central West End for anybody listening who kind of knows knows that area. And then I think it was about a year after we moved in that Pie moved in, which is like one of the best pizza restaurants in, in the city. And so we were, you know, we're tempted by that daily, essentially. But you know, good place. Yeah, you were about thirty five pounds heavier back then. Yeah, than yeah. you are now. You must have moved out of there. It's working from home now, right? It's it's the effect of the pandemic. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, well, anyway, it's yeah, it's great to have you here. And you know, I was Keith. I had a guest on recently. Her name was Ashley Walters, and she recently took her organization through the transition to an ESOP or uh, an employee stock ownership plan for those listening who aren't familiar. And we got into that topic a little bit in, in the conversation. It was more of a conversation about leadership and, you know, kind of serving leadership and and being focused on uh, less on top-down directive leadership. 
But we got into ESOPs a little, and I thought, you know, I got to get Keith on this show to go deep on that topic and just talk about transitioning businesses and what's changed over the last few years with you know all the, the chaos out there. So here we are. Perfect. Well, happy to be here. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Keith, can you kick things off by maybe just telling us a little bit more about your background and, and your particular expertise? Sure. So I uh, was born in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, grew up in a small town in Nebraska, moved my way across the country going to undergrad and then to law school, and then and then ended up just really focusing on sort of the tax-oriented parts of mergers and acquisitions. At first as a lawyer and then as an investment banker and and been in that position ever since. And really, my entire career, 20 plus years, has been servicing founder-owned businesses and family-owned businesses and and just helping them either build the business or figure out business succession for the business and whatnot. And really across a lot of different industries, but but we've really centralized and focused around similar to what what you've done at your businesses, we're really focused on really niche manufacturing, logistics and trucking, you know, really basic and business services. So really basic, very large parts of the economy, but more basic businesses. And so it's a lot of it is about, you know, nuts and bolts of the business as opposed to, you know, is this technology going to change the world? That's not really what we do. And so that's always been our career in terms of what we do every day is we, we help our clients either figure out capital for their business or uh, much of our time is spent figuring out what is the, the natural best path for this business through succession, because so many of our clients are jokingly within this silver tsunami, right? The bunch of old gray-haired guys, which I've got a few too. I just don't have my hair out long enough right now to show it off. And so there's a, I mean, there's a very large number of entrepreneurial folks that are going to have to do something with their business. And, and that's a lot of what we help them do. And we take it with a complete blank sheet of paper. We try to get our clients to go and, and start with that sort of, you know, here's a blank piece of paper. What what as opposed to what everybody you know has done or what somebody talked about at your country club or what somebody peer in your industry has done, why don't we talk about what you want to do? You know, who are your stakeholders? What are your passion points? You know, everybody always wants a great valuation for their business. And I get that. That's check the box. Everybody wants that. What's all the other stuff? Because there's there are a lot of different paths you can go down, ESOP being one of them. Awesome. And yeah, we're going to get into that topic, I know, in, in a little more depth shortly here. But you know, when you and I were talking a week or so ago, just sort of preparing for, for this conversation, you were talking, it was, it was interesting to hear your, your perspective on sort of how the merger and acquisition market has changed over the last couple of years, especially as it relates to this particular audience of this show, the mid-sized manufacturer. I'd love to hear you kind of get back into that topic and break that down a little for us. Sure. Well, I think it's like the a tale of of sort of three different worlds or four different worlds. Like the way I think about it is we've had these cycles that have been really interesting and and, and we may look back and never have seen this again or or before or again. The first was we went through this tremendous like meteoric downturn in the in the great recession right so 2008 9 10 and and on you know into 11 and 12 really a lot of the manufacturing and market industry got pummeled and hammered and as as bad as any industry honestly and it's just you know demand destruction in the market right and so folks had to learn how to do business in different ways during that period of time 
And then we had this period of time where it felt like everything, like demand just kept growing incrementally every year. And we compounded that with almost 0% cost of capital, like debt capital, right? And so we had this incredible time to build a business that where we literally have this unusual interest rate environment that's compounded with pretty good demand out there in the marketplace. And it almost, I joke around, it allowed us to get a little bit lazy, right? You didn't have to innovate quite as much. You didn't have to like really work hard in your business as much as you might have because you didn't have a lot of those sort of t- you know, front end challenges in front of you. And then we're hit by a pandemic, which we, you know, I don't know if I, if you had that in your forecast, Joe, but I didn't have that in any of my forecasts. And so we get hit with this global pandemic quarantine, the entire supply chain of the world was disrupted. And then after that, we had this like bellwether period of time where a lot of businesses really, really flourished from a, you know, combination of, you know, supply and demand comp dynamics. And I take us through that history lesson only to remind us that we've been through all these cycles. And what that's done from an M&A perspective is it's led to folks at the end, going into 19, we had had a wonderful M&A environment, very seller-oriented, great opportunities for sellers on that throughout that sort of grid. Buyers had low cost of capital, so they could pay more. Sellers knew it. Sellers had great financials. And so they demanded more. And so the whole thing sort of worked together and it was very seller oriented on every aspect of a deal. And so it wasn't just that. It only started with valuation, honestly. Great. You gave me a fabulous valuation. That's the fir- That was checking the first box for you. Now, how fast can you close? How good is your money? How short is diligence? And I'm going to hold your feet to the fire the entire time because I'm going to keep the number two warm just in case you fall out. And so, and most transactions got executed because, you know, there was that dynamic of everybody's feet was to the fire to get to a closing. And then in 20, it was a very bizarre year, obviously. Stuff got closed, but not, but you mean, anybody who says that was a great year wasn't in the business, really. And so stuff got closed, but it was weird and lots of stuff got pushed to, you know, to the right in the calendar. And then in 21 and 22, there was this flurry of deal work. And part of it was just so much delayed demand right in the marketplace from deals that got delayed. And so there was just a ton of supply of capital and not as many businesses available. I joke around, like part of the reason people paid so much more money for a business in 21 and 22 is because you had to, to win. And the reason you had to is because we had winners and losers of businesses, right, post-pandemic, and the losers they were not available to be in market, right? They were licking their wounds and trying to figure out what's the next stage of this pandemic thing and how is it going to affect them. The winners were crushing it, and they're in market and trying to sell. And so the, the reality is you had less businesses available to be sold and the same or more capital available because a bunch of capital didn't get put to work in 20. And so it was like all this piling in money, less companies to buy. Wow, it created inflation for how much we would pay for or folks would pay for a business. And obviously, the Fed came in in 22 and like and did what the Fed does. And it raised interest rates precipitously faster than we would have ever expected and more aggressively. And now we sit today where the market's been repriced. And the funny part is, is 
everybody has has this sort of near term vision at the recency bias of oh well god you know i'm not getting the value i got in 21 or 22 guess what we love the values in 19 mm. before all this start and if you look at where we are now i i point clients a lot to we're kind of sitting where we were in 19 maybe even a little better and 19 was pretty great mm-hmm. and so it's not horrible. I mean, it, it, maybe you're not getting this Goldilocks valuation or something, but you're getting strong valuations out there in the marketplace. It's just a perception is different, right? And where we are today, is like the first quarter was quiet. Third, fourth quarter was quiet. And the reason why was because folks were digesting the effects of high interest rates on everything. And we're still digesting it. I mean, it moves so rapidly that the easy thing to assess is well, how much more does it cost me in interest, right? If I go borrow money to buy something, well, that's easy math, right? The harder math is how is it affecting supply chains? What's going to happen to demand in the marketplace? You know, what all these sort of things that take time to know about. And that's why buyers sort of, a lot of buyers put, you know, the brakes on and they started repricing and losing deals and pushing deals and doing stuff. But we've seen, you know, second quarter starting pretty strong. So I think from a perspective of that, that hiatus has sort of played itself out a little bit. But I would say folks are still going to learn a lot as they go through the process of, of just buying and selling over the next, I think, 18 months. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting is, you know, listening to you talk about all of this and in, in light of everything you just shared, like how, how's all this affecting the way that business owners who may be thinking about transitioning their businesses in the years ahead, like how's it changed the way they need to look at, at things? Well, I, I think it's, it's a great question. And I think the, the most interesting thing is the options that a business owner are going to consider are more mm. now are varied. And so I'll give you an example, Joe, if somebody came to you in the end of 21 and offered you twice as much money as you ever thought you dreamed your business was worth. Mm -hmm. Did you really sit down and consider all the other options that might be available to me in this world? And you didn't. I mean, owners hit the bid when they were offered these types of numbers for their business. And what that did was it took out some of the other options that you might have considered. And so if it was a strategic buyer coming to you and they all kinds of synergies and they offered you this amazing valuation, you actually don't, you, many of them didn't even go hire a smart guy like me. A lot of them went and got their lawyer and their accountant. They got that deal done, right? Because the number was so big. They were like, I'm not going to get distracted with any other option. And if they would have called me, I'd have told them to do the same thing. And so they didn't think about, oh, should I get a, you know, should I go and see if there's a financial sponsor, or a private equity group that might want to use me as a platform and build and blah, blah. Do, what's my legacy going to be like? What, you know, should I do an ESOP and do and, and try employee ownership or a management buyout or some other structure? You didn't because the dollars were too high. And so what's happened is as it gets repriced to more of like reverting to the norm of valuations, still good, but not insane. Now owners are more thoughtful. So our clients coming to us in the first, I would say in the last six months, they're not, we're not talking, oh, you're just going to knock it out of the ballpark. There's one option. Let's just go get that great valuation. Now we're doing the hard work again, which is we're looking at all those options and we're saying, okay, what do you want to do with your business? We're getting back to normal, I guess, is the way of putting it. And what's that that's done for business owners, it makes business owners reflect on what they want to do with this business, which might have been, you know, 40 years 
of their life experience, right? Or plus, minus, who knows, right? But they're really putting the time into thinking about that. And that's honestly, that's where we do our best work is when we have owners who are thinking that sort of ubiquitously. I want to look at everything. I want to look at all the options. I want you guys to guide me pros, cons, and where do we go? Um, which one's the one that's going to satisfy all of my needs and wants that we can possibly satisfy? Keith, we, before we hit record today, we were you and I were talking a little bit about you know how do you define value in a business? And I know it's more than just EBITDA, but talk about that a little bit for us. Yeah, I think as I reflect on this, this might be the most interesting discussion. It, it's always the most interesting discussion topic for every business owner who's looking to do something with their business. But it's such a peel the onion kind of discussion because it starts with how big is your business, right? Bigger is worth more. And now if you peel that away, the reason it's worth more is typically because that business is more diversified. That business has less ways to lose, has less concentrated risk points in the business because it's bigger and more diverse, right? That's generally the theme. The second thing is from a financing from a buyer's perspective and your ability to get capital for a deal, there are some breakpoints of size of business where there is more capital available to you, lower cost capital. So we traditionally think of like the first breakpoint is kind of $5 million of EBITDA. At that stage, there is more bank capital. There's a more sophisticated market there for you to tap. You get another kick at $10 million of EBITDA. There's once again, there's just a, a broader group, better group, more products, more credit available to you to go out and do it at lower cost. And and as you go up, there are these sort of natural breakpoints. When you get beyond that, though, it's really about it's about what did you learn about your business over the last three to four years? And what I mean by that is when we were in market with a business in 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14. Every buyer would ask you the same question. How did you do in the Great Recession? And they weren't expecting you to win. That would be a silly expectation. Mm -hmm. What they wanted to know is, how did your team react? What did you do? How did you survive? Did you take market share during that time against your peers who weren't performing like you? It's all those things like, did you, it, everybody's jokes around, you know, don't, don't waste a good recession. Did you not waste a good recession and what did you do? And it's a really good look at what those businesses value was in their supply chain. And as manufacturers, it's really important for that industry to understand where they fit in their supply chain. You know, are we original equipment? Are we pieces and parts of something else? You know, where do we fit in that supply chain? And how important are we in that supply chain is a lot of the reality of what value is for our business. And I tell you that story about the Great Recession because we have the exact same thing going on now. 2020, 21, and 22 are like the Great Recession from an information gathering perspective. And so if I'm a buyer and any buyer that comes in for diligence for the next five years, they're going to say, how did they do in 2020? How did they do in 21? How did they do in 22? And it's going to be the same kind of discussion because they're going to say, and, and it's different like reaction points, but still the same thing. So 2020, what are they looking for? How did your team react to this type of dynamic change globally in the world? 
and they're going to assess how valuable your team is and how valuable your organization is by how well you mobilize to 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 address those challenges, which were totally unique, right? Which is, I guess, everything's totally unique, but unique. The second is then you went into a period of time where you may have had a really great opportunity to, to make a lot of money because of supply and demand issues in 21. Did you guys, did you take advantage of that? Was your team strong enough? Were you ahead of it enough to be able to take advantage of that opportunity? And then in 22, what folks are looking for is they're saying, okay, now inflation came in in a vicious, very quick fashion, labor inflation, material inflation, every kind, every aspect of it, right? Shipping, I mean, unbelievable. And so then they looked at it and they say, and this one's really critical that folks aren't thinking about yet because it's a little bit near, but they're going to over the next 18 months is they're going to look and say, the value of how powerful you and your supply chain is going to have some relationship to how you were able to pass on the costs that were imposed upon you. And so your ability to get pricing for your product as a manufacturer and your ability to cover that labor increase, cover those material increases quickly and efficiently in the market last year is a measure of how powerful you are in the supply chain. And that makes you, and the more powerful you are, the more valuable you are, because you're obviously doing something value add in that chain and you're, you're powerful for whatever reason, right? We, we can name a hundred different ways a manufacturer could be powerful. They could have intellectual property. They could have, you know, a way of processing and doing things. They could have geographic like location that's super important to their supply chain, all those good things. But this is one of those rare times where we can look in and we can look at very individual data points that lets us kind of tell directionally how powerful you really were. Because there are companies that got terrorized last year, like couldn't get their price increases in quick enough, just got hammered. I mean, hammered. And they're just now eking out some price from their end markets in order to try to make up for some of that that they lost. And we saw a lot of companies like that. And, it, and it's eye-opening. And you look at that and you say, and I would tell those management teams and I would tell our clients, learn something from this moment in time. Because either your folks weren't mobilized enough to go get that pricing or B, you weren't powerful enough. You're too much of a commodity in your supply chain to be able to demand it. And that's a problem. Yeah, really interesting perspective. I, I imagine it's... not that I've ever thought about this before, Joe. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem like it. You kind of just came <laughs> yeah, up with that was... on the spot. I can yeah. tell. Just yeah, no, I imagine these last few years have just been so interesting for someone in your position who gets you know the window inside so many different businesses and kind of see the patterns that are emerging and what people are doing right and wrong. Just hasn't been a time quite like this, huh? No, it's no, it's been fascinating. And I, I'm a student of business. You know, after all these years of. You can't be in this business um, and advising companies if you don't have a genuine curiosity and, and like an appreciation for the constant learning of business. And boy, this has been a PhD over the last three years. I mean, it's been fascinating to watch. I mean, we've got clients. We have a client who went from the best year they ever had was 20 million bucks of EBITDA, mm -hmm. and they did 130. Wow. That's wild. In about a 24-month period of time. Can you imagine? No, I can't. <laughs> I mean, me neither. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, and that's a super extreme example. But there's there are a lot of those examples. And then you have other folks. Um, we have a private equity fund in, that we sponsor. And one of our portfolio companies 
is in the pet hotel industry. And in 20, that was a challenging industry to be in when you're quarantined, nobody's going anywhere, nobody needs your facilities for dogs. And so I joke around because our our CEO in there is an amazing guy. He went from, in 2019, they're having the best year they ever had. 2020, they lost five and a half million dollars on the bottom line. Now you look at today, once again, best year they've ever had. Everybody has dogs now. So they're doing amazing. And I, and I told Jared, our, our CEO, I'm like, at some point, you're going to need like counseling probably for going yeah. through this whole thing. I'm kidding. What a roller coaster. Man. But it's just, it, it, that's just, you know, those are a couple anecdotal examples of the experiences everybody had in business throughout all of it. And just witnessing that was, it's astonishing. Yeah. No kidding. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away. So I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Brendan Forrest. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic, and one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. Well, Keith, let's shift gears here a little bit. You know, I, I really want to talk about ESOPs with you a bit. I know this is one of your deep areas of expertise and a, a passion of yours. And I'd love for you to just kind of start out for listeners who aren't really familiar with what an ESOP is. It's like, Can you talk about it at a basic level and um, kind of just break that down? For sure. So ESOP buyouts or employee stock ownership plan buyouts have been around for a long, long time, like 40 years, 50 years, something like that, longer than me and you. And the whole premise behind it was to create a vehicle, a trust, actually, it's just a, you think about it, a retirement trust account that an owner, if they so, so chose, they could choose to sell to that trust and it would hold the company in trust for the benefit of its employees over time to create a retirement for them. And that was the premise from the beginning and it continues to be the premise over time. And so as a, as a business owner, you look and you say, okay, what are my options? One option could be I'm gonna sell to a strategic buyer, right? We call strategic buyer, which is basically just a peer or a competitor or an operating business that's in somehow related to your market, right? Or I can sell to a private equity group huge class of, of buyers, the biggest in the market, really, for lower and middle market companies. And there's tons of really smart people have raised a bunch of bunch of money, and they're good at like buying companies, building companies, and then they sort of rinse and, and recycle those over time and create returns. And obviously, with the size of that market, they're doing something right. And then the third category is what we, we discuss with our clients is something else. And what I mean by something else is you're not going to sell to an outside party. 
either strategic or financial. And that's where we start talking about things like management buyouts. They're in principle simple to think about in practice challenging because they're very they're very tax inefficient. And so it's difficult to get good value out of the company and also fair value and also a timeline that isn't forever for the business owner in terms of exiting his financial or his or her financial investment. ESOPs, which is a the way we structure them are kind of a version of a management buyout, but you're just your central vehicle for the purchase is this ESOP trust. And then there's family succession, which we don't dwell in as much. We only dwell in it in the context of how it fits into those other categories. Because there's a whole estate planning you can do structuring if you want to just succeed to the family members and that's the only thing that you're looking to do. And so the ESOP itself is pretty simple. It's like buying a house. The company, are the and we come in, we service the company, or we serve the company and the board and the shareholders, and we come in, we set up the trust, and then we go raise capital for the trust to be able to buy the business. And so we usually go to senior credit, which is banks, credit funds, private credit funds, all those folks. Sometimes a little deeper, we go to mezzanine funds and subordinated creditors for larger transactions, more complex transactions. But the one common theme is the business owners are going to help. And what I mean by that is they're going to support a good portion of that transaction by seller financing, which requires them to be a little patient. And so you take those credit sources, they total the total value of whatever the transaction is. So if I'm selling the business for $10 million to the ESOP, then I got to go raise $10 million from those sources, which are banks, and the seller. The employees don't put any money in up front. They put their hard work and everything. One time I said in one of these discussions, I said the employees don't pay anything for it. And one of the employees took um, umbrage with me and was like, well, we do kind of work here every single day and work our butts off. And blah. I said, fair point. They don't have to write a check, but they do have to work in the future to pay off those debts. And the reason I use the analogy of the, of the house, because it's like the employees are getting a 100% mortgage, right? They don't have to put any of their own equity in. And really, it's the seller who's providing that equity that you would normally have to put up if you're buying a house. And then over time, what happens is the company performs, hopefully, and the company whittles away at that debt over time. And when you look up, most well-structured ESOPs, seven, eight, nine years in, They've completely deleveraged from the original debt. And now the employees own that company and are operating it through this trust. And it's generating equity value for them that's spread across the entire employee population that ultimately they will get as they retire. And that's that's the sort of soup to nuts of it. But the important piece and 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 what I always like. Owners are like, whenever I talk to families or, or founder owners, they, they think the decision of whether you want to do an ESOP or a different type of transaction is super complicated. But over a, 20 years of doing this, it's pr- actually pretty simple. I mean, there's one question. Are you willing to wait to get the liquidity out of your company so that you can diversify your personal wealth from this individual investment in a privately held company into cash, right? If you are not willing to wait, an ESOP is not for you because you have to help facilitate it as a seller. It's a plan of succession and liquidity, not an event. 
There is some event, but it's not the whole thing. I mean, most ESOPs, I would say, are probably 30 to 40% of the value is liquid at the closing. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And the rest of it's being supported by the seller and the family and paid off over time. A good breakdown. What? How long does it take to play out typically? And like, what's the process kind of look like with an ESOP? Yeah, so I think if you looked at our... The way we prepare our client for it, if they said, hey, I really want to do an ESOP, we say, okay. And we typically tell them this is a four to six month process from start to finish to get to a closing. And a lot of the differential in that time frame is driven by what type of capital are we raising outside of the family? So what third-party capital are we going and getting and how complicated is that and how far and wide are we going to go searching for that? And so if it's a simple like senior debt, we've got a great incumbent bank that loves the company and the family and wants to support this transaction. And we're just sort of testing the market against that incumbent could be a four month process. But if we're starting from scratch and we're going out in the world, we're going to like find everybody and get everybody to come in and bid on what they would put what they would provide in debt capital for the business. Probably going to take six months. Could take longer, depending on how complex and large the company is and how many moving parts we have. But that's kind of the process. And and really, the way you do it, if you, at least my opinion, after doing this a few years, the way we do it is we set it up and we say, the first stage of it is, let's make sure it's feasible. Let's make sure that it's satisfying the passions and the points that you as an owner are trying to satisfy. You know, value, liquidity all the stakeholders around you that you're trying to do something for like how's it going to affect your leadership team how's it going to affect your employees your supply chain you know everything one of the things joe might be interesting for you to hear is i hear more and more in the last couple of years a sincere desire of founders and family business owners when they're thinking about these options about taking care of the people in their supply chain like other business owners that are around them and they have been part of their supply chain for years and years. And I think it's because of the the pandemic, because these folks felt like they went to war together over the last, over those few years. And they genuinely have a care for that. Now we closed a transaction last year where they, the founder owner been in business a long, long time. He's like, Keith, I would not want to do anything to harm. This transaction cannot harm. These guys who've been supplying me with stuff for 30 years and helping me build my my business, and these customers who've been like buying stuff from me, paying their bills on time, doing all that stuff because those guys took care of us during the pandemic. It's an intro. I mean, and it makes sense and makes me feel good about humanity, right? But but it's all so it's all that stuff. That's the first stage. Second stage is we go and we go test the market for capital. Like we go to the debt market and we get bids. Because at the end of the day, that's usually a test of whether or not it's a transaction that family or founder owner wants to do. And what we haven't done to this point, by the way, is hire a bunch of lawyers or accountants or gotten on the and, and we're typically successful. And so it's not like an, a family is putting a huge investment into this process before we check some boxes to make sure it's really going to work. And then once we have capital circled up, then we engage lawyers, we put together the structural plan, we engage with a ESOP trust team, you have to basically create a third party buyer by law. And so we're going to, we're going to go find the most credible, best qualified trustee to help with the, the transaction and act as a buyer. 
they're going to hire their own team, financial advisor who does valuation work for them, their own lawyer. We're going to encourage them to get the best quality team they can to do a great job as a buyer because we're representing the seller and we want them to be good buyers of businesses. And over time, we've seen that, you know, the folks that regulate ESOPs, that's important to them as it should be that the, the buyer is truly acting like a buyer and is doing the diligence, is making sure that value is good, is making sure that, you know, the total cost of capital for the deal is good. It's all that, that good stuff. And, and then we get to a closing. And then there's a whole sort of roll it out to the team and the employees and that whole thing. And then there's a maintenance of it over time that needs to be done. And then if you're truly going to embrace it, which most of our clients do, there's a whole process of education to get alignment between all the employees and the structure so that they understand what happened, what changed, why is this important to me, and getting them to buy in that it could be good. And obviously, that gets reinforced with success. This was all super interesting, Keith. I, I love, you know, I love just kind of hearing you talk about this. You've obviously been in this world for a long time. Is there, is there anything that I have that I didn't ask you about that you'd like to add to the conversation? Well, the only thing, and, and by on purpose, the one thing I didn't talk about, yeah. but I'll mention at the end here because it is important is I don't think that founders and family and families should use tax as a primary reason to go down a particular route of succession planning. I think that should be something that is at the end, you optimize the tax result, but it really should be done for all the business reasons and the capital reasons and all that. And, and one of the things, and, and I think if you talk to other folks in, that are in advising on these transactions, they, a lot of them start with tax, tax, all oh, the tax savings and the tax benefits, and you should do this. And so uh, in the same format as I would talk to a client, I talk to you is at the end, what you ought to know is there are tremendous tax benefits to the ESOP structure. Most companies that are in the ESOP structure ultimately don't pay any federal and state tax after they do the transaction, zero. And so think about how competitive you are, the ability for you to deleverage out of the debt that was put on to do the deal, and how competitive you're going to be in your peer group of competitors when they all pay tax and you don't. And it is a distinctive advantage. And the other piece is, particularly in, with rising interest rates and whatnot, and also, I suspect, higher capital gains rates at some point, there's also a tax benefit for shareholders that do the ESOP transaction in the sense that they can defer capital gain tax, and in most cases, indefinitely. And so those are two very powerful motivators. But like I said, they shouldn't be at the front end of the decision making. They should be on the, you know, after you've decided, okay, now let's optimize it kind of thing. But that that's the piece that I would say we didn't address that that is that if, if anybody knew anything about ESOP, they would look at Joe and you and say, geez, you guys never even talked about these tax benefits that everybody else talks about up front. Awesome. Well, appreciate you adding it in there. Of course. Well, Keith, great conversation today. This was, this was enlightening for me. I'm sure it was for many of our listeners too. Can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about what you're doing at Butcher Joseph? Sure. So in general, feel free to come to our website, www.butcherjoseph.com, or feel free to contact any of our professionals when we're all on there. So, or call Joe and Joe's got our number. There you go. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you, Joe, for inviting me. And it's, 
Wonderful to see you again after this tremendously weird period of time, even though it is on video like most of our interactions in life these days. Yeah. And you look good, even though you stayed a, you were living above the pizzeria. But I have another sneaky feeling that all of our attentiveness to our looks went up as we all had to stare at each other in uh, video no calls. No kidding. There's, right? There might be a direct linkage between that and the use of your home gym. <laughs> I, you probably do a study on that, and I, I bet you're right. But awesome. thanks so much. And I love seeing the stuff on your team and your business. And just it's uh, you guys have really built an amazing culture. And it's something to be to be congratulated because that's the hardest part of a business. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Keith. It's It's been a been a wild ride, but a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show. And we'll we'll have to, you know, we're gonna have to catch up over a beer or something at some point. So for sure. Well, awesome. go Cardinals. They need our help. Yeah, no kidding. all right keith well thanks for doing this today and as for the rest of you i hope to catch you on the next episode of the manufacturing executive you've been listening to the manufacturing executive podcast to ensure that you never miss an episode subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player if you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles videos guides and tools specifically for b2b manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn thank you so much for listening until next time <laughs>